Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcast does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen, how's it going? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. So today we're going to talk about the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative and focus on the August 2012 issue of the Journal of Human Lactation, which was dedicated to Baby Friendly. I'm going to talk a little bit about Baby Friendly first. The Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative grew out of a worldwide recognition that the hospital environment can essentially make or break a woman's success with breastfeeding. This movement was launched in 1991 by the World Health Organization and UNICEF, who recognized that if we can encourage hospitals to foster breastfeeding success, we can have a major impact on infant morbidity and mortality worldwide by preventing artificial infant feeding. Since 1991, more than 22,000 hospitals in 157 countries have been designated as baby-friendly. In the United States, we have about 150 certified baby-friendly hospitals in 34 of our states. Yeah, about a third of those are in California. Yeah, I think yeah, I think a lot of them are are out west. Um, we have actually, I think, four or five in Wisconsin. Uh, to become baby friendly, hospitals go through an external certification process that measures whether or not they've achieved the ten steps. And for those who are listening who don't know the ten steps for baby friendly hospital initiative, I'm going to briefly review them. The first one is to have a breastfeeding policy for the hospital and to share this policy with all hospital workers so everyone's on board with the same uh, philosophy and values regarding breastfeeding. Um, the second is to train all healthcare staff to have breastfeeding knowledge, which involves about 18 hours of education for nursing staff and about three hours for physicians. And that would include residents as well. The third step is to teach all breastfeeding, all pregnant and breastfeeding women about the benefits and management of breastfeeding. And obviously, we want to get that education in for women when they're pregnant because once they're starting to breastfeed, it's sort of hard to learn as you go when you're so tired. And uh, many hospitals tend to do that when they're doing their childbirth classes prenatally. The fourth step is to help moms initiate breastfeeding within one hour of birth and to try to make sure that the babies are skin to skin within the first half an hour after birth. And this would involve avoiding all the routine, relatively um, elective things that happen afterwards, such as weighing the baby. The fifth step is to show moms how to nurse and how to maintain lactation even if separated from their infants. The sixth is to give no supplements to infants unless medically necessary, and there are specific reasons why babies need to be supplemented, and that those are the guidelines that should be followed. The seventh step is to practice rooming in so that moms and babies are together 24 hours a day, meaning that the baby stays in the room with mom and doesn't go to the nursery. 
The eighth step is to encourage unrestricted breastfeeding on demand. So it's important that babies not be put on a schedule. There shouldn't be any any defined ways of breastfeeding, Making basically making sure that the baby is nursing whatever the baby wants to nurse. But then if the baby's sleepy, making sure that the baby is woken up and, and feeding frequently. The ninth step is to give no pacifiers or artificial nipples to breastfeeding infants. And the tenth is to foster establishment of breastfeeding support in the community and refer moms to them on hospital discharge, which means making sure that moms know where to go for support and for help. Yeah, and all of those steps really have been shown to make a difference. I think that for me what really locked in my support for the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative was a really important study in 2008 in pediatrics, which showed the dose response between the number of steps and the amount, the percent of women who were able to achieve their personal goals to breastfeed for more than two months. So that was the, I think her name is Digira Lamo, um, who showed that if you had greater than six steps, you were only about 3% likely to not reach your goal, but people who weren't exposed to any of those steps, well, about 30% of them abandoned breastfeeding before they met their goal. Yeah, that's interesting. I, my understanding is that many um, journals are very inundated with articles on, breast, on baby friendly because it's such an obvious benefit that people who like to document, who like to publish, who are doing quality improvements, they see these relationships between improved breastfeeding success and baby friendly that they are wanting to publish all these articles and they're just either having to turn away turn away these articles. Yeah. So do you want to go first and talk about um uh one Yeah, of absolutely. Sure. So um one of the articles that I um was interested in was one titled Breastfeeding Promotion Plan in Madrid, Madrid Spain. And that was by Beatrice Flores Anton. And um, this article, in the article, Dr. Flores reports um, about the fact that little research has been done into regional breastfeeding promotion. And um, this is really interesting to me because it talks about a regional collaborative that was developed in Spain, in a region around Spain. And it's actually quite similar to a regional collaboration that has happened here in Los Angeles. And so the study that she published is a descriptive study about um, the health authorities in Madrid um, signing a collaboration agreement with the United Nations Children's Fund in 2009 to create a breastfeeding committee. And um, they did this because even though Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative has all these benefits that we've talked about, and a lot of European countries have had a large percentage of their birthing centers become baby friendly. After 18 years, Spain only had about 4% of their births in baby friendly hospitals, even though this is recognized as best practice. Um, in the region, there were actually 20 hospitals and one had become baby friendly. And so they created an action plan which um, included an institutional commitment from each hospital to a creation of breastfeeding committee at each hospital, and they went on to do some analysis of what they were doing before the um, intervention, staff training, um, creation of educational materials, and dissemination, and really worked together 
so that every hospital didn't have to sort of struggle independently to come up with their own training and educational materials. The plan was adopted by the 19 um, non-baby-friendly public maternity units in the region, and they all started off by completing the World Health Organization self-assessment questionnaire, and um, they did that in 2009, and then post-intervention in 2011. And remarkably, after the first year, 13 of the units had established a breastfeeding committee, and then 32 months later, the other six have all created a breastfeeding committee. They worked together and created a sort of train-the-trainer course to get professional experts on breastfeeding in each of the centers. And through that training, they created almost 300 people to um, become trainers and go into these different hospitals and then trained 1,400 professionals. And so by creating this collaboration, it sort of accelerated the process of the whole region um, becoming baby-friendly. And um, now, a few years later, half of the hospitals have some level of accreditation and two are fully accredited. And this is really similar to what we've seen in LA. Um, we have around 50 hospitals in the Los Angeles area um, where babies are delivered, and the Regional um, Breastfeeding Task Force has um, allowed more than 30 of them to enter the pathway to become baby-friendly. Interestingly, the um, hospitals found that exclusive breastfeeding rates, so babies who left the hospital without having gotten any formula, increased about 7 to 15 percent from baseline levels even though um, compliance with the WHO code for marketing breast milk substitutes didn't change. And we should probably talk about that um, code in a second. And um, I thought that was interesting because it is part of baby-friendly, but it's usually the last step that hospitals undertake. So I think as these hospitals continue, that will probably, probably change. I think this model is probably going to be useful for a lot of areas now that it's um, been effective in a few different places. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that um, it's interesting about baby-friendly because baby-friendly can also be a marketing tool for a hospital. So in our region, in Madison, we just have um, two maternity hospitals, and it's competitive, so they're not going to really want to work together to come up with the baby-friendly <laughs> policies. But I find that in the really small communities in Wisconsin, we have so many, you know, most communities in Wisconsin are very small, and there's one regional hospital, and many of them have been communicating with other, with each other on resources, tools, um, professionals that they can bring in to talk, to train their staff. And in a way, they're doing that informally. So it, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in more... Um sort of rural spread out areas, I think sort of the state health authorities are encouraging some state collaboratives. So, you know, the, the two competing hospitals might not decide to go into it together, but if the state starts it, they may both join to try to keep up. And right. um, a lot of these states in LA also have gotten money from our Centers for Disease Control. So it's really national money partly coming through obesity prevention that is... Um, encouraging this change. Right, right. And hospitals are also being measured in their um, MPINC scores, that hospital survey, survey that goes out once a year, and they get mm -hmm. scored on their 
in their maternal infant nutrition scores, which are largely baby-friendly steps, which is exciting, too. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I heard that last week JACO announced that the peri- perinatal um, core measure that's related to exclusive breast milk feeding in infants mm-hmm. is going to be a required measurement. In oh, 2014. Outstanding. So that was really good news for us that this measure, which was brought up last year to try to start hospitals and the idea of just paying attention to whether or not they were unnecessarily supplementing babies, is now going to become something that's really important for them when they're um, surveyed by this national accreditation body. Excellent. And that's the JACO is the Joint Commission of Accredit- for Accreditation of Hospitals. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, great. So I'm going to move on and talk about the uh, the whole issue of purchasing formula. The Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative requires that hospitals purchase their formula, which ends up being a sticking point for some hospitals. Uh, for decades, hospitals have typically received free formula from formula companies, and formula companies know that this is a is a great marketing strategy because healthcare workers will likely default to that particular company or formula when making formula recommendations to families and vice versa. Families are going to typically continue to purchase formula that they were given in a hospital because when a healthcare worker hands out formula to someone, that family is going to think, well, gosh, you know, that person has a white coat, has a MD after his or her name. And if they're recommending this formula, that's what I'm going to buy when I leave the hospital. Hospitals that stopped accepting free formula in order to comply with baby friendly have not found it too difficult. It hasn't been nearly as expensive as the formula companies would like us all to believe. In in this in regarding this topic, I found Marsha Walker's article called Stealth Formula Marketing to be interesting. Given that the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative presents a threat to formula companies because they can't market in this way anymore, Marsha Walker discusses other ways that formula companies are marketing to the public health world and to families. So first she reports on the Nestle Newark, New Jersey Advisory Board, which is a joint effort at reducing childhood obesity. So Nestle gave the city of Newark, New Jersey $100,000 to run a two-year pilot program to provide parents in Newark with infant and toddler nutrition information. And Nestle provides its own nutritionists to deliver this information, which is a little bit like the wolf in sheep's clothing, or actually a lot like the wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, a lot which is, like it. Which is kind of frightening because $100,000 is cheap, cheap, cheap for a company to get its you know, its hands on a population you know, in such a captive way um, and when they did the press release, they av- actually advertised their formula in the press release. Other That's cities, unbelievable. It is. And other states and, and cities are also being contacted um, by Nestle to form these alliances. She also describes an initiative that Nestle has taken on in India to promote optimal nutrition during the first 1,000 days. The first 1,000 days has become a topic, I think, started by a major journal um, and there have been committees and organizations that have been focusing on the first thousand days of an infant's life in order to improve the inf- – I don't know much about this, but to improve the infant's um, survivability, basically. And so Nestle has has taken on uh, this idea of the first thousand days to promote optimal nutrition – 
um, during a time that Accord and Deli is actually charging Nestle with violating the law in advertising and labeling some of its food products. Because they uh, actually follow the WHO code there. They do follow the code, yeah. Um, Abbott and Mead Johnson, which are two other formula makers, have been using smartphone applications to essentially normalize bottle feeding. So in the apps, moms are taught how to structure infant feeding, such as the average amount of uh, food that's consumed, the average frequency of feedings and feeding duration. And none of these rules make sense for breastfeeding moms. So this sort of application can disrupt the confidence of breastfeeding moms who might worry that they can't measure how much their babies are taking, which you and I both know that's one of the things that mothers fret about. It's like, oh, I'm not sure how much my baby's taking, so I'm not, you know, I think I'm just going to pump and bottle feed kind of thing. And this kind of app um, would promote that. Formula companies are also using social media by offering gifts and financial incentives to parents um, who are using the formula, and they want these parents to go out on their social networks, like on Facebook and Twitter, and talk about how much they love their formula. Um, I think there's been a lot of evidence that people learn um, and believe in in information that they get through their social media almost more than what they would um, learn or read from other sources that maybe are scientific. Um, because formula companies could end up looking like tobacco companies as people think more deeply about the consequences of not breastfeeding, the formula companies have been trying to align themselves with public health initiatives to look like the good guys. They want to, they, they want to look like they're trying to help fix the health problem, problems of our nation specifically obesity and all the diseases associated with obesity. So Marsha Walker's point is that we should not engage with formula companies on these public health initiatives because we become the agents in promoting their messages that they're good guys and care about public health. We already used our professionalism to promote formula companies by handing out all sorts of free formula and other formula company materials for more than half of a century. And I feel that we basically should have learned our lesson since we're still, after all, you know, after 100 years, still trying to convince our population that breastfeeding is normal, not formula or bottle feeding. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And really, after we had talked recently about the AAP, um, you know, breastfeeding um, policy statement, I was thinking, you know, I'm really surprised there's nothing in here specifically mentioning the WHO code and um, the fact that the AAP does have a partnership with one of these companies to provide some educational materials to residency programs. It's really hard for people who are struggling to finance public health and medical education to turn down this to what, what to us is really big money, but you're right, it's peanuts. Well, the reason it's companies. Well, the reason it's not in the policy is because the American Academy of Pediatrics accepts lots and lots of formula money, and until they I stop know, doing, and they right. need to stop. Right. So the countries that have adopt, who have adopted the code of marketing for breast milk substitutes, um, have enforcement so that they like what India is doing, where they're actually suing Nestle for violating the laws in advertising. In the United States, um, there's been some degree of lessening of marketing a formula. Like you don't see it nearly as much as I used to on TV. But now there's all these other social media ways of promoting formula and artificial infant feeding. The United States has never adopted um, any 
they haven't adopted the code, which means that they're not going to enforce any sort of inappropriate advertising directly to healthcare workers or to the public. But the World Health Organization code states that formulas should not, that formula companies should not be marketing directly to healthcare workers, not directly to the public. They should not have any sort of labeling on the container that indicates that uh, formula is like the right way to be feeding the babies. Um, it's not equivalent to breastfeeding. Yeah. Right, that's not equivalent, and that um, and that there should not, they should not be advertising um, bottles and uh, artificial nipples. Mm-hmm. And the next article that I want to talk about actually relates directly to what you're talking about. This is an article that's entitled Expansion of the 10 Steps to Successful Breastfeeding in the Neonatal Intensive Care Units. This was an, ex- an expert group recommendation. Um, it, it, this group recommends three guiding principles. The first author was Kirsten hedberg Nykvist, and there were, there's a whole slew of other authors following that. This is essentially a draft proposal to expand baby-friendly to neonatal intensive care units. This proposal comes out of this work group, which is an expert group from the Nordic countries and Quebec. So, you know, the idea is exactly what you're talking about, where we need some standards in the neonatal intensive care unit to try to increase um, the use of breast milk and breastfeeding in the NICU. So they present evidence that the baby-friendly hospital initiative standards have had some spillover effects on breastfeeding rates and frequency of human milk in neonatal intensive care units. And you and I, of course, both know that breastfeeding and provision of human milk um, are both crucial to the health of these really vulnerable infants who are either sick and or premature. But they point out that the neonatal intensive care unit is a very different environment from hospital floors where term healthy babies live with their families. For example, it's oftentimes hard for families to stay with their premature or ill infants, and often moms can't breastfeed because of the infant's health status. So they they decided that it's very difficult to give absolute steps, but they recommend three guiding principles in addition to the 10 steps of baby-friendly. Um, and these guiding principles include, number one, the staff attitude to the mother must focus on the individual mother and her situation. And within this guiding principle, they say, well, first of all, the staff should pay close attention to the struggles that mom has in establishing and supporting her milk supply. They need to provide sensitive breastfeeding support since many of these moms have trouble establishing a good milk supply. And I think you and I both know from research that somewhere around 50% of moms have difficulty establishing their milk supply and they have trouble increasing their milk supply over time as the baby ages. The moms might have trouble getting a good pump, letting down to a pump, being comfortable with manual expression. Um, She may have other responsibilities with other kids at home. She might live far away from the NICU, all sorts of different things. The staff, the hospital staff also needs to recognize something that this work group calls, quote unquote, delayed development of maternal identity. Because before these moms establish themselves as actual mothers of these ill or premature infants, they oftentimes pass through various stages of shock that this happened, sorrow, sometimes they feel guilty, they have emotional and physical exhaustion, and they need support in these different stages. And sometimes they're so overwhelmed by these emotions that they really don't focus or can't focus on breastfeeding or 
their emotions have a negative effect on uh, establishing breastfeeding in other ways. In addition, these moms are separated from their babies and they'll use their postpartum time differently. I find that many moms will go back to work really early so that they can use their maternity leave when the baby comes home. Um, they also just, there might be strict visiting hours by the NICU so they can't come in as, as often. They might live far away. Um, and also these moms end up having anxiety when it's time to pay, take the baby home. So it's important to have moms who are very comfortable and confident. Um, in addition, if they're not breastfeeding successfully, they may have feelings of inadequacy until that until breastfeeding goes well. Um, so it, that would take a lot of staff training to have the staff understand what moms and dads are going through. The second guiding principle is that the facility should provide family-centered care um, which is supported by the environment. And this means having respect for parents. They should recognize that parents should have unrestricted access to their infants, which means supporting these parents as they take over infant cares, encouraging bonding such as kangaroo care and what's called cue-based feedings, where rather than scheduling infant feedings, which so many NICUs do, allowing babies to go to the breast whenever they're hungry, um, which, you know, kind of kind of takes away all the precise measurements in the face of nursing organizations exactly yeah yeah but we need to change that Um, oh yeah i agree with you completely yeah and the third guiding principle is that the healthcare system must ensure continuity of care meaning continuity of supportive care through the prenatal period perinatal period and postnatal period and post-discharge care meaning making sure that there's good physical and emotional support of the of moms in all these stages and making sure that when these babies go home, that they're supported by the healthcare system. And where I see that as a downfall in my community is that the is that breastfeeding is not focused on so much during the hospitalization because they just wanted to get these babies home and mm-hmm. you know the and the families are told, Well you can work on breastfeeding when you go home and so they're left with um pumping, adding extra calories to their breast milk and maybe being told they can breastfeed once or twice a day, and then they're sent out, and it's up to either the pediatrician or family physician to support um, that mom and baby or a lactation consultant in the community that may not be very comfortable with preemies, and there's a lack of communication between lactation and the pediatric provider. And so it's really imperative that we have some sort of you know, some sort of established follow-up for these um, for these premature infants to make sure that that breastfeeding can be successful. So I yeah, think that I agree with you very much. Yeah. And some NICU clinics have NICU follow-up clinics. Yes, mm-hmm. but even then, I find they're not very focused on lactation. They're, right, they're dealing with some medical issues instead. Right, right. Like I, there's uh, a doctor in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, Isla Boys, who has a follow-up. Um, preemie clinic in San Diego and she focuses on breastfeeding but those are so far and few between and it's hard, you know, it's so important for the neonatal intensive care unit providers to make sure that they give that information so babies will leave our NICU but they're not even though I'm available, you know, in my breastfeeding clinic, they're not oftentimes told that they should come and be seen. And and I have to say, some pediatric providers are excellent and very comfortable with supporting breastfeeding after NICU discharge, um, but some are not as comfortable with it. Do they ever send you um, the moms while the baby is still 
in the NICU to yes. try to help her. Yes. Because I find that starting that connection early with clinic really it does help if the NICU doesn't have adequate support to find it outside the NICU because so often in my experience because of the rush or the desire to get the baby home as soon as possible, they often do say, oh, well, you know, if the baby is eating by mouth 100% of the time, they can go home. Right. And because that can happen faster with bottles, they don't emphasize breastfeeding and they really do the family a disservice. Right. Whereas in that study of Denmark, they said that almost all of the NICUs had the ability for moms to room in with the babies day and night and take care of the baby essentially independently for several days doing all the feedings before they would be allowed to leave. Right. That's sort so... of change the paradigm of what is going to get you home so that moms are motivated not to work on bottle feeding with their babies, which I sometimes find here. I want to help them on breastfeed and they say, no, no, I want to get the baby home. They told me I can do it faster this way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do in that whole area, but at least the conversations are starting and there's a recognition that things need to change in neonatal intensive care units. Yeah, I yeah. think that definitely the baby-friendly hospital initiative is having that spillover effect, and it is having a, a benefit. And the, the neonatologists are highly motivated to get breast milk for the babies because it does improve their outcomes. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, that sounds good. Well, it was great talking to you, and um, I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Have a good couple weeks, and I'm sure you'll stay warm in sunny California. (laughs) (laughs) I will stay warm up there. Yeah, good luck. Okay, take care. (laughs) Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.